to this week's episode of the Animals at Home podcast. It is September 2019, and that marks one year since we started the show. I know it's cliche to say, but the year has absolutely flown by. I can't believe it's already been a year. Last September, when I first released the first batch of episodes, I had no idea what I was doing. I guess when I started the this, you know, started working on the podcast, it would have been August, July of last summer, and at that time, I had I knew nothing about starting a podcast, absolutely nothing. As much as you know now, if you've never explored how to start a podcast, that's what I knew. And for some reason, I had this little inkling, this idea that came to me that said, you should start a podcast. And I don't know where it came from. And my first gut reaction was fear. I had this, you know, nerves in my stomach. I'm not a very outgoing person. I'm a very introverted individual. Uh, Despite what you might think, that's kind of how I am. I'm very quiet for the most part. And I had this fear. My first reaction was, no, don't do that. And for some reason, I just ignored the fear. And I just thought, if I just hit sort of create the podcast quick enough before my fear can kick in to stop me from doing that, I might be able to get somewhere with this. So that's kind of what I did. I just quickly created the podcast. I started to find guests. I did this before sort of my fear could kick in and stop me from doing that. And it's been a fantastic year. I've really enjoyed myself. It's been a tremendous amount of work and a massive learning curve for me. But I would be nowhere without you guys showing up for me every single week. So I have to thank you guys as a listener. Every week you guys show up for me, you listen to the shows, you share it on social media. So thank you so much for that. The the download numbers increase month by month and uh, I couldn't be happier putting the show on for you guys and producing it for you. I love hearing from you. I've had so many different emails, just people shouting out to say hi. You know, I have a giant list of future guests that I want to contact from you guys. You guys keep giving me amazing suggestions for guests and So again, thank you so much for being here uh, with me for this whole year. And of course, I absolutely need to thank every guest that's been on within this first year. It's difficult to find people that want to come on a podcast, especially when it's new and you have no numbers to show for it. I can't, within this first year, I couldn't offer somebody a bunch of exposure, you know, a bunch of downloads and, and all that. There was almost nothing I could offer them besides a good conversation and that's all I did offer them. I would message people. I got lots of no responses and lots of no thank you, which I totally respect. But essentially, within this last year, the people that I've had on the show are people that are so insanely passionate about their work and the animals that they work with that they don't care about downloads. They don't care about exposure. They just wanted to have a good conversation. And I think that's what we did within this first year. So if you are a past guest from a previous episode and you're listening to this right now, Thank you very, very much. I I could never have done this without you. The show would be nothing without a guest to talk to. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And being that it is one year since we've started the show, I think it is super fitting that I get to announce the first official sponsor of the podcast. So the Animals at Home podcast is now officially sponsored by CustomReptileHabitats.com. So if you're watching my YouTube series, Building My Day Gecko Vivarium, you would have heard me mention this in the last episode that I produced or I published. Custom Reptile Habitats is a perfect match for animals at home because our philosophies very, very much align. If you're listening to my stuff, you know that I'm constantly about pushing the hobby into the future, pushing us into better care, learning how to make our animals, you know, act like they do in the wild and promoting that species specific behavior and moving away from industrialized style care and custom reptile habitats reached out to me with this same philosophy so essentially what they've done is they're compiling 
products on their website that are sort of the gold standard when it comes to reptile care. So we're talking Arcadia, the BioDude, Universal Rocks, Miss King, Maximum Reptiles, which is a brand new enclosure company that I highly recommend checking you out. I do really think they're going to be a game changer in the reptile industry. So when Custom Reptile Habitats reached out to me, it was basically a no-brainer. This was exactly the type of thing that I would love to promote and love to work with them on because we are both striving for the same goal of improving the reptile industry. So I want to be as open and honest with you guys as possible so you understand how the partnership works and so you can be part of the process. So whenever I share a link to customreptilehabitats.com, it will be an affiliate link. And what that means is when you go to their website through one of my links, if you were to buy something, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. So for example, let's say you need a new Mist King system and you maybe have some new dart frogs. You go to customreptilehabitats.com through one of my links, you buy the Mist King and a commission comes back to me. So that does two things. A, it helps support the show. It helps me afford to continue to produce the show, buy equipment, buy space online to publish the show. And then B, as you know, if you're following my content for a while, you know that I support the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. So I always make a donation from profits that I make through the channel to the podcast. I do always submit donations, usually quarterly or every couple months. And you can find more information on that on my website at animalsathome.ca. There's just a link that says Save the Rainforest. And you can see how much we've actually raised up until this point. So as I said, since our philosophies are so well aligned, I think this is going to be a perfect partnership moving forward. And I'm very excited to, to continue to work with CustomReptileHabitats.com. And if you do need something and you want to support the show and it, the Custom Reptile Habitats does carry it, then absolutely feel free to go through one of my links. Don't buy anything if you don't need it. Only buy something if it's, a, if it's going to support your goals when it comes to your reptile care. And, and I'm sure lots of you have different goals. Custom Reptile Habitats will be able to help you out uh, with almost anything you need at this point. They have some seriously high-end products available. So definitely go check them out. So on that note, let me introduce today's guest. Today I'm joined by Josh Jones, who is PJAC's Deputy Director of Government Affairs and the staff liaison to the HERP Committee. So if you're not familiar with what PJAC are, they are the Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council. And this is an industry or a, an organization that helps protect the pet industry as well as helps keep it healthy. So they help promote animal welfare and environmental stewardship as well as responsible ownership and responsible care. And they also help protect us and protect our rights to keep pets. This is what we really focused on in this interview because obviously within the reptile industry, that's something we come up against a lot. Quite often there's random sort of arbitrary or seemingly arbitrary legislation that gets put in place. And PJAC is, is an organization that helps reptile enthusiasts communicate and educate lawmakers and helps you know mend and mold some of those bylaws and legislation that are trying to get put into place or sometimes even reverses them. So it is a, it's a really important conversation to be had. And I think this will be a great resource for anyone that's interested in how laws get made and how, how flexible laws can be before they're put in place and, and sort of what steps you can take to, to be involved in that process. We also discuss Habitatitude, which is a great initiative being put on by PJAC, which is out there to help people responsibly own animals and make sure people are being educated before they jump into a long-term commitment with a pet. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think there is a lot of valuable information in it. So without anything further, here's my conversation with Josh. All right, Josh, well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I, you are definitely someone who um, 
is behind the scenes. You know, you know, PJAC is one of those things that maybe not the average Joe or average Jane is, is super familiar with when they're in, in, in the pet hobby. So uh, definitely looking forward to illuminating some of that for people, including myself, because there's a lot that I don't know as well. But what I'd really like to understand about yourself is, you know, people who are animal lovers typically have like the common you know, career path, you have your vet or, or biologist or, or zookeeper and whatnot. But for yourself, your career path is very unusual, I would say. It's, it's, it's a different career path than many animal lovers would, would go down. So, was your, did you always have a goal of having an animal sort of centered career? No, but uh, I've always had a goal of wanting to do something that makes an impact, makes a positive impact. Um, and I've always wanted to be involved on, you know, in issues that, that uh, have, uh, uh, you know, uh, something that will do something to, to impact other people's lives and such. So, um, you know, I've always had pets in my life and uh, I originally started my career uh, with the credit unions and working with them to better educate young adults on personal finance issues um, and, um uh, had uh, just decided at one point that, you know, it was an opportunity out here in, in Washington, D.C. to take advantage of and involve pets. Um, I've, I've had pets all my life. Uh, I remember a West Highland Terrier uh, when I was a little kid and uh, named Gandhi. And then Butch was my first beagle. Uh, and then I had a boxer and um, uh, got into some aquatic stuff when I was younger. And, you know, just the thrill of going to a pet store going to pick out a, a new plastic plant when you're six years old for your goldfish, uh, it made an impression upon me. And so when I learned more about what the issues were facing, you know, pet owners and uh, uh, the impacts on, you know, people's ability to own certain pets, um, you know, it made me want to get more involved. And therein lies my, my, my track here at PJAC. I actually started in the, the world of uh, digital engagement uh, and working with uh, our members to, to, to reach out to more consumers and things to get them to weigh into the lawmakers on important issues. Interesting. That, yes, that, that's kind of a perfect marriage of uh, a hobby and a career. It, it yeah, it you. really is. Yeah. And, and right now I own, uh, let's see, I have two Cresties, uh, uh, freshwater tank, uh, and two, two pups. Awesome. So, got a nice cool. family. Uh, at home. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. So let, let's talk a little bit about PJAC. So I guess as, as obviously it's a broad question to ask, so you can, a, you can answer it quite broadly, but what, what does PJAC do and, and what is that organization? Sure. Uh, well, we're essentially the uh, government affairs arm for the U S pet trade. Uh, we work with our members and responsible businesses across the U S to address legal concerns, uh, 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 I guess, regulatory concerns, uh, ordinances or laws that are being considered. We work with our members to educate lawmakers and make sure they understand the issues uh, that they're addressing um, and, and try and help them find the right path to, to uh, again, to address their concerns. And, and your goal, or I, I know I was reading at one point an article that was written, I think about you, um, maybe it was that uh, top 40 under 40 pet, inf sure. I forget it, yeah. And, and you said one of the goals in there was to to improve the relationship of the professionals and the hobbyists. And, and for me, that is one of my goals with my show is I, there's always that disconnect between these two groups. And one thing that I picked up on very early is that there's actually a lot more in common than separate with these two groups, but they're often sort of at odds with each other. And I know that, so why was that important for you to sort of connect those two parties? Uh, well, I think, you know, when it comes to, uh, to businesses uh, in the pet trade, customers, the pet owners are their lifeblood. They're the one uh, of the most important aspects, uh, other than animal care, 
that um, that that pet stores or the, the folks that produce all the goods or live animal producers, you know, uh, need to need to pay attention to and, and care about. So um, I think it's important to make sure that uh, pet owners are, are well uh, understood uh, and that um, their uh, their their cares and things are, are better understood by by industry, so that industry can then better serve them as well. But beyond that, it's also making sure that uh, the pet industry, the businesses, and uh, the employees. Um, that uh, are a part of the pet industry have better relationships with their regulators uh, and the government agencies that, that, that serve them, uh, as well as public officials uh, and, and uh, elected officials. Because, um, you know, when there's a, an issue or uh, something that pops, you, you want to be able to talk to them uh, and have an established relationship so that they know that you're not just coming in to, you know, uh, you know just address one small item, but that you are a, a caring, responsible uh, uh, business in the community and that you want to help serve the public. Um, you know, because I think industry has a responsibility to serve the public, also to educate and provide resources and all these other things to make sure that, uh, uh, that uh, pet owners are properly caring for their pets, but also that, you know, one of the reasons we have this program called Habitatitude uh, is because it, uh, it helps educate pet owners to, to uh, be, be understanding of what it takes to find the right pet in the first place uh, to avoid having to relinquish pets at all. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the, the important parts about the relationship between pet owners and the industry that I think we're, we're working on uh, right now. And it's actually been working on since 2005, Habitat Attitude. Yeah, it, it's always interesting because it the the first engagement with an animal or a pet is always through the pet or I shouldn't say always but a lot of the time it's a, a child through the pet hobby you know they experience a pet in some way and that's what influences their career path and and it's super important that we do nurture that so is it kind of like there's sort of three main parties you could say there's the government and then you have the industry and then your your consumer your hobbyists and we're looking for because you know, sometimes the, 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 the governments come up with regulations that impact the other two and, and you know, they're, they're obviously doing it out of the, they're trying to protect the community in, in some way. So for you guys, are you just trying to bridge those three parties and, and help them communicate in a way that shows that this is actually a positive experience for the society? Yes, and uh, we are also working with academics uh, and, and a lot of researchers as well, because a lot of the regulations, you know, that uh, are proposed, uh, we want to make sure that they're based on science. I think, you know, industry understands that we certainly have a responsibility in many, many areas. Uh, but as far as uh, prohibitions on ownership or importation or exportation uh, restrictions, we need to make sure that what is being done is based on science. Because uh, these are livelihoods uh, and uh, people have family businesses. Uh, and beyond that, it's also limiting access to pets in, in many ways. Uh, you know, reptile and uh, amphibian ownership is important because you may not be able to own a dog or a cat if you live in a certain area or you have an apartment uh, in a certain certain area. So, you know, pet ownership is really important. Uh, again, that, that kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier about why, you know, I came into being with, with PJAC from, from previous uh, the previous iterations, like I say, it's, it's about the issues, but it's also because these are important things to address. I mean, uh, pet ownership uh, really does improve people's lives. Um, there are studies and uh, research being conducted right now, and, and uh, there's also published information on HABRI, the Human Animal Bond Research Initiative, talks a lot about uh, the benefits of pets. And, uh, you know, I think that needs to be protected. Uh, and I also think that, you know, jurisdictions have 
certainly the, the, the need to make sure that they are protecting their, their ecology, the environment, uh, and uh, uh, to make sure that the public is, is safe. But and a lot of times what we see is uh, well-meaning proposals that um, seem to lump in a lot of common pets or uh, animals that uh, maybe at first blush you wouldn't necessarily know about if you weren't a pet owner, uh, but you know tend to you know get wrapped up in regulations that are overburdensome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I had a conversation with Ryan McVeigh, who I know you know from. Oh, yeah. um, you've worked with him tons, and and one of the things that he really stressed in that conversation is that they are the government officials just don't have the education to make the the laws and the bills sort of fit right they're just trying to do their best and and at this you know we don't want to seem like we're being attacked there's a lot of ways we can go about it you know through education and rather than just you know firing all cylinders and trying to you know tell the government they're taking away our rights and whatnot obviously pet ownership is is important so why you you kind of mentioned it and that that pet owner is important but wh why do you think that is like what what are some of those things in the studies what are they showing that in, that is so important to own pets sure uh well i can tell you that um from from what i've seen most recently they, they show studies that uh the pets pet ownership aquarium ownership for example with lower blood pressure uh the, the the companionship of an animal you know you may not think uh a spider or uh, a crested gecko has, uh, you know, a lot of companionship uh, opportunities. Uh, but, you know, I, I can talk from my own personal experience that, um, you know, caring for and observing these animals, it's fascinating. And uh, it really, you know, there's a process involved with the care of, of these animals that can really uh, be a benefit to folks, take your mind off of things um, and, and give you more than just your nine to five, you know, to, to, to deal with on a daily basis, right? And so it's that, that care, uh, the action of caring, the, the need to go uh, find additional uh, products or do some research, find buddies that are doing similar stuff and, and talk to them, find information out about what's going on. It's a whole thing. And so it, it really does help, I think, people who maybe have uh, different stress or depression issues, anxiety issues. Uh, pet ownership really does have a major impact on people's lives. Um, and I think there's, there's, you know, animal welfare concerns and things that need to be uh, considered along the way, but pet ownership needs to be protected. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, it's absolutely a balancing act between all those things. But that is a point that I always try to stress is there is a certain amount of purpose that people derive from owning animals. And, and, and obviously, we always want to promote responsible pet ownership and proper care. And that's just that sort of goes without saying in a way. But the amount of purpose and meaning that someone can get just from caring from a crested gecko is interesting. Like some people would think, why? How would that? How would that be? But there are people who are in a depressive state or going through anxiety or have a, a really tough time and the animal is what gets them through that and it can be hard to believe and I think that's probably one of the issues that you guys probably come to is that there's a lot of people who would be totally indifferent about having animals right so they, they don't care either way it's like well why would I care if someone can own a snake and whatnot and well, is that yeah go ahead I was just gonna say and there are a lot of folks out there that don't want you to own animals period right um, so you know I, I think you know, that's why it's so important to make sure that you have great relationships with your lawmakers and officials uh, from, from industry standpoint, because there are folks out there that don't think we should be doing what we're doing uh, because they see it as a harm. And I think there's uh, maybe some miscommunication there or maybe some better understanding of the science behind it. But I think the human-animal bond is, is so important. It doesn't stop by cute and fuzzy. And um, it, it's something that I think is part and parcel of what makes pet ownership 
such an important piece of, uh, of our lives and why it, it deserves to, you know, have some more attention paid to it um, when it comes to, the, you know, addressing laws and, and things that might impact it. And obviously there, we, especially in the reptile hobby, we have some pretty bad history in terms of the, the starting of the hobby. Like it wasn't a, a smooth transition, you know, to just starting to own captive bred geckos and whatnot. There, there is a lot of horrible um, importing and just, just all these different things. And, and I think some, some lawmakers see that and that's what they assume is still going on. So as a hobby, it's so important that we take responsibility for everything and we keep the hobby healthy by promoting proper ownership. Yeah, absolutely. It demonstrates that you're the responsible folks, you're the adults in the room, uh, that you take these things seriously. And it's also important to know that there are a number of regulations already out there when it comes to the importation and exportation from at the federal level. And, and even now at the state level, we're seeing a little bit more of that activity as well, where states are wanting to take a little bit, uh, pay a little bit more attention as to uh, uh, different uh, uh, you know animals that are coming through, whether through, through pet stores or zoos or some of the other institutions that deal with animals as well. So there are restrictions and, and uh, there are a number of different regulations in place across the board. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, uh, talking with them to understand what they what their intention is with those regulations and to make sure that what the regulation is meant to do does it. I don't know if I said that right. Yeah. <laughs> you get a little confused there, but you get, you get the idea. Yeah, exactly. Because like like they, I said, they, they don't necessarily understand. They don't have that hobbyist or you know professional uh, ed education when it comes to the hobby. So it's tough to write a law about something that you don't really know about. But they're trying to you know, have an umbrella that protects it. So and that's what the process. That's the process of government, and that's what you know uh, why it's important to have organizations like BJAC. Right. Yeah. Because they must start with just a, a broad idea of what they want. And then it takes organizations like yourself to say, hey, this doesn't make sense. You need to refine that and, and sort of. Let's work together. Yep. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of the sort of bills or laws that you've been able to either reverse or, or change? Like what, what sort of things are, are you guys taking care of? If, if we just stick with the sort of the reptile hobby in general, just to, to keep it in that scope, are there some things that sort of come to mind in terms of bills that you've changed? Uh, well, yeah, we, we certainly impact a number of different proposals. Uh, it seems to be in um, various metropolitan areas, you see regulations uh, uh, or the, uh, the drafting of ordinances that would limit, again, pet ownership or the sale of, the breeding of. Um, for example, uh, I'd say it was uh, in Norman, Oklahoma, not too recently, uh, or not too far ago, where uh, they had some proposals regarding snake ownership uh, and uh, using length as a determination as to whether you should own or not own or have permits or not have permits. So again, there and, and we have a number of stakeholders that we work with as well. Other organizations out there that do a great job representing interests. So we try and work with them a little bit to understand where they're coming from. And, uh, and we work with our members, our HERP subcommittee, uh, understand what's going on. And then we'll, we'll engage with testimony, making phone calls and things. So uh, we were able to, you know, along with a number of other groups, help uh, that, that group uh, in Norman understand a little bit more about what they were trying to do uh, with their uh, captive animal ordinance. Or, um, I can't remember exactly what, the, exactly what it was called, but uh, essentially it was uh, levying additional restrictions and, and things on animal ownership. But um, again, you know, there are reasons to do certain things and there are reasons not to. So we wanted to better understand where they were coming from. Other examples come from, you know, Arlington County, uh, Virginia, where a group of 
local stakeholders uh, stood up and, uh, and and talked to their officials about why, uh, you know, when they were looking at, uh, um, I guess, restrictions on certain animals of certain size, what they call dangerous animals, that they did not include things like uh, uh, pythons or uh, uh, things under, you know, a certain length, um, because those are common pets and they're not going to have the, the kind of problems that uh, folks are concerned about with larger animals. So uh, those are kind of some of the examples of, of, of you know, uh, uh, proposals and things that are stuff at the state level as well. Um, I know that Arkansas most recently uh, has updated their import uh, and export uh, per, uh, permitting uh, permitting uh, regulations as well as uh, uh, breeder-dealer uh, seller permits. So there we've been working with uh, the folks at uh, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission to learn a bit more about what they were hoping to do uh, and try and, and influence their uh, I understand what they were trying to do so that we can help uh, educate them and influence what their decision was to do the right thing. So uh, we're still in talks with them to understand a little bit more about where they're headed with uh, additional listings. Um, but, but you know, we feel you know, that we're working with them and, and trying to better uh, understand where they're coming from so that we can help them. But uh, so those are some basic examples of, of uh, some of the pieces of legislation and regulation, too, that uh, we work on. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when you just read a bill, it's actually difficult to extrapolate what the government officials trying to accomplish with it. Like there's just so it is is it like you see the length thing or the size thing quite often. Is in your experience is that mostly an, a dangerous animal? Is that is that what they're going after there? Is that why typically, they do that? Yeah, mm -hmm. well, I, I they typically wrap up common pets like a let's just say a ball python, uh, just for example. Uh, they would come up with a list of animals. They would say, you know, these animals uh, need to either not be owned or possessed in this area where they require some, some level of permits and inspection requirements and things. But, uh, you know, typically you're looking at someone who's just kind of compiling a list perhaps and uh, waiting for public comment. So, you know, that's where the process takes place and there's a comment period and there's also, you know, public hearings depending if it's an ordinance and so forth, where you have the ability to, you know, to, to stake your claim and, and make your points. And then there's lots of opportunities beforehand to, to uh, talk to officials and so forth. But it seems as though it's, it's either uh, misinformation uh, or it could be misunderstanding or just, you know, uh, uh, the best set uh, or it's their their thought is that this is the process. And so we'll, we'll just go ahead and put this out there and let people, let the public come to us with, with their concerns. So, again, that's where, like you said before, certain people may not have a lot of experience or understanding about certain animals that are common pets. Uh, and just off the cuff throw in, okay, this seems like a good metric. This seems like what would, what I think. Uh, or what uh, we we may be hearing from from uh, from others that makes sense, but when you get down to the science of it, size, length like that does not necessarily have anything to do with whether the animal will become invasive or have uh, particular harm or cause problems, you know, uh, in in the local community. Right, and and that's the thing where we kind of are down a step with the reptiles, especially with snakes, because the average person would rather us not own them because they're scared of them, and and then because it's sort of bizarre that there's I, you don't see evidence of a snake that's six foot long ever killing anybody so it's sort of this they call this danger but is there any evidence of anything ever happening you know the the statistics that i've seen there are no real um, uh, there's no real good evidence that i've seen that common pet snakes have any impact 
uh, on on the health of, of people when it comes to you know being dangerous like that. Now, of course, salmonella and other concerns as far as handling and being a responsible pet owner come into play, right? You want to make sure that uh, you, you are using proper techniques and hand washing techniques to handle your animals properly. But when it comes to the danger of an animal eating you, for example, that six foot python is not going to do that. It's just not in their characteristics. And, and the statistics bear that out from my understanding. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre. And for, for me, I live in a, pub, a country with a public health care system. So I can imagine that dogs and cats have a much larger medical bill when it comes to to hurting a person or endangering a person than a reptile. And, you know, people think like, oh, a six foot snake, that sounds massive because it's just like what they don't realize is that it's like as thick as a roll of, of well, I was going to say loonies, but for those people who are not Canadian, loony is our dollar coin. Like, a, you know, like, a, I don't know, a, a sausage, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they're not these huge animals, but people get really, really worried about them. It's kind of crazy in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where uh, the HERP subcommittee, um, our members and, you know, hobbyists out there are so important uh, to, because they, they help us understand where we need to be, but it also helps the, the regulators and uh, the officials understand where they need to be. Is, is there normally like an incident that, that charges a, a bill to pop up or is it just sometimes they just someone decides to go after something? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, I think sometimes you may see sensationalized articles in local press um, that may or may not be accurate, uh, and that can catch the attention of, a, of an official. And then that official says, "Boy, we really ought to do something. Let's set a, a committee, or let's get some folks together to to see where uh, we may we may end up on this." So that's I can see that happening, and and I wouldn't say that that's always the case, but it does happen. And then. If somebody lives in a city where there a bill is popping up and something's trying to get passed, if what do you recommend the steps they take? Like, hopefully they have a herp society that can take some of the the load there. What would you say that herp society should do to to help educate the the lawmakers? Well, I think first and foremost, it's you know uh, setting up a meeting and talking with them uh, to, to to address their concerns, coming up with your top three items uh, of concern specific to the the piece of legislation. And, and talk to them about that specific item um, and then maintain that relationship, um, not only just uh, up until the hearings, because there may very well be uh, public hearings and uh, other meetings and things before something uh, gets to a final vote. But beyond that, you know, and once that's done, then then maintain that relationship. Um, you know, it, it's it's a little self-serving, right, to, to only come when you have a problem. So it's it's always helpful to continue those relationships after the fact because that's when, you know, they'll uh, be much more willing to listen, we, we found in, in, in our experience. Yeah, and I imagine showing them the value in the hobby is got to be a huge aspect to it. Like you're showing these people that you're getting kids involved in science at a young age and it's totally self-driven and self-motivated. They're, they're getting into the hobby because they're just deeply interested in it. And you could take that away from them and what, what will be left. Right. And I really think it, it just depends on what the concerns are for right. the official. And so, you know, that, that, that helps you determine where, you know, you, you need to hit your points. But that is a very important point to, to make because, um, you know, you need to make sure that, uh, that certain groups are still able to uh, use or, or work with the animals that they love. You need to make sure that pet owners can, can enjoy the animals that they, they want to enjoy uh, for whatever reason they want to, uh, as long, you know, as long as they're, they're doing the right thing and caring for them properly. Um, 
you know, and being responsible about it, uh, then, you know, you just need to make sure that, that they're aware that there are responsible people out there and that misinformation is often used to drive a lot of proposals. Uh, you know, Ryan said uh, a great piece of advice to me when I talked to him and he said, treat the lawmakers like anybody else that you're ed trying to educate. So if your kids programs or your, you know, public education programs, that's how you want to treat the lawmakers as well. Sure. I think it's a great way to approach it. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, yeah, they, they really don't know. And the more you can expose them to that, the better. So with, with, um, sort of getting back to PJAC in a way, I mean, obviously we're kind of, uh, broad, broadly talking about it. Obviously there are people out there that just, there are people who are indifferent about the pet hobby. Then there are people who absolutely hate the pet hobby. Like you have these animal rights groups who just kind of go very aggressive on no pets type thing. Uh, do you guys run into issues with groups like that, that you have to sort of defend against? Like, is that sort of a nuisance in a way? Uh, well, there, there are groups out there that have those opinions and mm. they, um, are always, uh, working to expand their, um, expand their reach to influence lawmakers to their points of view. Uh, and you know, they're entirely, uh, entirely, uh, available to have their own point of view on these things. We try and, and, um, address things through science and through, uh, information produced through, you know, uh, studies and things of that nature, instead of just sort of, uh, you know, we're concerned that these animals are, are being harmed and, and where there are problems. So uh, things need to be ba- based on science. And so typically that's how we address uh, concerns from uh, a lot of the animal rights groups. Uh, and, and again, they're well-intentioned folks. I think they, 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 they want good things. Uh, and I think we also want good things too. Um, so I think there's, there's ways to, to work together on certain things. Uh, I think there are certain things we just won't see eye to eye on. And, um, and so it's, it's important to make sure that we're making our case, uh, and to, to make sure that reasonable, uh, people stand up to, to make sure that, uh, the officials hear them and so that the officials can use that information to make the best decisions. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it, it, I think it is really important that we do support, you know, a big box pet industry, because that is where a lot of kids get started. And like you said, at the very beginning, like walking into a pet store is was an exciting thing. I do that now, like when I'm in a strip mall or something, and there's a I, if I don't have to stop at a pet store, I'll still walk through just to see what they have. And as long as we can strike the balance to keep it healthy and we don't want to give the animal rights groups proper ammunition or ammunition where it's like they can prove that things have been going wrong. We obviously love the animals and we want to make sure that they are cared for properly. And it's not about making money in a way we, we do want to keep the hobby healthy, but you're right. It, they, they are well-intentioned for sure. Sure. So the, yeah, what you're saying is that there's a responsibility that we, mm-hmm. we as industry have. And I think it, it's not just the big, bigger retailers. There are lots of independent smaller retailers that, that make up, uh, the balance of the, the pet industry uh, and, and the herb industry specifically. So everyone together, you know, has a role to play in this process. And that includes best management practices, policing ourselves, making sure that we're operating the proper way, uh, best management practice when it comes to husbandry or to, uh, like we have uh, best management practices that uh, speak about reptile shows, expos and things of that nature. Uh, those kinds of things show that, you know, to, to regulators and so forth, that you're being responsible, that you are adhering to certain guidelines and things and that you are not just, you know, it's not just the wild west. Um, other programs that, that are important to make sure that, you know, uh, uh, lawmakers understand that industry is uh, 
being proactive. Habitat attitude is one of them. Uh, healthy herb handling poster, which I think you see over here, yeah. uh, is another one. And again, that's about educating consumers to understand about proper handling techniques to wash their hands and so forth. Because those kinds of things are used in proposals to levy restrictions. Uh, these animals are, you know, harbingers of major diseases and things. And so these claims, you know, these tropes uh, are, are, are brought out to uh, uh, kind of exacerbate, you know, some of the concerns that may be there with salmonella or things. But there are ways to mitigate these risks. You know, Dylan, there are, there are risks in society. There are risks to things that we do, driving down the street, eating in restaurants. Regulations help uh, mitigate those risks. And then the other thing is your own, your own behavior. Uh, the behavior of the industry or being responsible industry. So having those BMPs, making sure you're doing the right things, adhering and abiding by all the laws and regulations that are out there. Uh, that's part and parcel of being a responsible industry. Yeah, and, and making it more difficult for the irresponsible owners is also good. Like putting those place, those things in place that make it more, maybe more difficult to sell your wild-caught animals that you got from an, an, an import or, you know, sketchy breeding and whatnot or, you know, breeding animals that do get too big like sulcata tortoises and selling them for $50 and whatnot. Sure, sure. So let's talk about ha habitatitude because that's one of the things that I really wanted to discuss. So, so let's just sort of, what is that? Yeah. Uh, Habitatitude is, uh, is an education campaign. Uh, we've uh, worked on it with uh, a number of uh, uh, co-sponsors, including uh, NOAA and uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a program to, to educate consumers uh, about uh, initially uh, not releasing pets into the wild and, um, and educating them about you know, the, the harm that that could cause and then giving them alternatives to release. Uh, recently, based on you know uh, changing attitudes and uh, uh, millennials, uh, uh, how they consume information, there was a need to make sure that we updated this program because it hadn't been updated. At least the website component hadn't been updated in quite some time. So uh, it, you know the the keystone of it is the website habitatitude.net. Uh, just would encourage everyone to take a look at that website. Um, it will tell everyone about the, the program, but uh, in, in a nutshell, it's a program to educate consumers uh, to make the right choices um, at the very beginning of their, uh, uh, their pet experience, if you will, to avoid problems in the future. Uh, so it talks about uh, temperature, humidity, uh, enclosures that you might have to, to, to make sure that you have uh, or that you would make sure that you have. Uh, diet, all the different things that come into uh, basic care requirements, making sure folks are aware of that so that they make the right decision in the first place. Uh, and, and we think that will help and it will help change uh, consumer behavior. Uh, so the key here is getting this information into uh, the hands of consumers at key points in the process. So that includes, you know, a point of sale or uh, at uh, uh, fish bags and things like that. I think you may, if, if any of your listeners or, or uh, folks that pay attention um, are aware of uh, the uh, fish bags at, say, Petco and PetSmart. They have Habitatitude logos blasted on them. Uh, we're going to work with them a little bit more to, to get some more information posted in their stores. But, you know, once you have that information in front of folks uh, at point of sale, then they're much more likely to you know, abide by or, or uh, use that information to make the right choices. Yeah, it's it's sort of um, thwarting that impulse purchase in a way where you can you sure. can you know you see the animal you really want it but then like hey let's look at some information about it to see which one of these guys is going to fit your 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 capable of capabilities of care right and people have you know uh, may have a child that that sees uh, uh, 
a, a snake or something that they really, really want, but because of some reason, uh, the, the care requirements perhaps, or uh, some other reason that, uh, that, that may not be aware of, the parent may determine, you know, that's probably not the best pet for him right now. Let's, let's go with something else. And, and, you know, they can still derive all the benefits from the human-animal bond and, and, and owning a pet. It's just they're choosing the right pet this time instead of uh, just off the cuff finding something that maybe they think may be a good thing. Uh, but, but arming them with, with real-time information so that they know that they're getting the right thing. Is it mostly focused on, is Habitatitude mostly focused on uh, fish and reptiles, I think, or, or does it kind of cover a broader t- spectrum? Sure. Well, it initially started focused uh, on aquatic species and water gardeners uh, back in 2005. And as part of the revitalization of the program, uh, it was clear that we wanted to have more an expanded audience. We also wanted to have more information posted on our website. And so with the popularity of reptiles as pets and with, you know, a lot of the the misinformation out there about all reptiles are invasive or something of that effect. We wanted to make sure that uh, consumers were armed with the right information uh, going into things, became pet owner. Uh, and that's where we added two tracks, two new tracks, uh, reptiles and amphibians, and then also a uh, track uh, focused on classroom pets, uh, because there's a lot of concern about what does the teacher do with the pet at the end of the the, the school season. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure that those folks were best armed with the information as well. Uh, and again, it, it, it's a matter of uh, educating folks about choosing the right animal in the first place to avoid any problems moving forward. As a hobby in general, just the pet hobby, we're, I guess we were probably running into quite an issue of people just releasing their pets. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. Um, I would say that you, you want to make sure that folks you know, I haven't seen statistics that might bear that down. Yeah, um, I haven't I think either. it might be common to assume that you well-meaning pet owners would want to release pets into the wild to return them back to their home or give them another chance at uh, living back in the wild. Uh, but most of these folks, uh, most of these animals are captive bred to begin with. And so they haven't really developed the kind of instincts or they don't really have the wherewithal necessarily to adapt to um, these areas. And the other thing to consider too with, uh, with, with a lot of that is that a number of uh, areas don't really have the climate to allow for these animals to survive. So on one hand, you know, that, that may be good from an invasive species angle. You're also thinking about, boy, I just let this animal out here and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to expire here shortly. So there's got to be another way to handle that. And there are, you know, find, find a, a friend, find a, a herb society, find a, uh, uh, you know, somebody who can care for the animal uh, that you don't have to release it and find a better home for it. And, and, and yeah, that, that's how that would be mitigated for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. F- Florida is just sort of the perfect storm of conditions to accept like every possible invasive species on the planet. But yeah. most places are not like that. And I mean, I, where I, I mean, you, you guys have winter in DC gets fairly cold, I'm sure. And I, it gets fairly cold here. So, but at the same time, like you said, that's not really a reason to let them go. And they're just, you're just buying them, you know, a month or two before they die of the cold. Right. And that's not being a responsible pet owner. I mean, mm-hmm. when you become a pet owner, you're caring for this animal for its lifespan not just because it's a, on a whim and uh, you, you, you just want to have something fun for now. So that's what we're trying to drive home. And, you know, the, the information that's on the website as far as uh, uh, selecting the right animal, then you know, it goes through, like I say, uh, 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 habitat, but also diet and behavior and things. And then it also talks about, uh, you know, uh, some of the, the aspects of the environment. 
uh, why it's why it's important to to do these things because you know many popular pets have established themselves in certain areas. Now, it's subtropical, like you say. Usually, it's it's areas in a very poor, sub, certain portions of, of Florida or something to that effect. But you know where it has has done damage, then we need to to make sure that we don't allow other animals potentially to do the same thing as things change. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing with reptiles is a lot of them do live quite a long time. So that's going to be a huge part of the education too, right? Is telling people this is not like a two-year gecko. This could be like a 20-year gecko. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, another example would be aquatic turtles. You see a small aquatic turtle, you think, boy, I can just keep this in a tank or it, somebody may have a certain perception of how they care for that animal. But it, it, what it needs is, and, and, and in fact, our herb subcommittee worked on one of the, uh, the care sheets that we have for PJAC and updated it into a graphic format to that of uh, uh, infographic. And one of the things it talks about is, or one of the reasons we did an infographic was, um, was because we wanted to show visually all the things that are required or uh, we'll make sure, you know, to make sure that this animal is well cared for, uh, we're visually present. So our friends at ZoomEd helped us with that, uh, that uh, infographic and, uh, you know, sharing it as much as possible. But those kinds of things are, are part of what, what needs to happen with, again, with Habitattitude and what we're trying to do with PJAC. Help, under, help people understand all of the different things that go into pet ownership, again, so that they, they make the right decisions and, uh, and they, enjoy, um, they enjoy the animal. It's a symbiotic thing, right? The animal gets something from you as well. They, they, they are in a safe environment. They get to thrive. They eat well uh, and, and things of that nature too. So it's, it's a symbiotic of, uh, benefit there. So in, in a pet store, if, a, if one of the, the, the store you walk into is a partner of Habitattitude, is there like, is there information there on each animal or is it just sort of a prompt to go to the website? How, how are you educating? Because that's one of the issues with big box stores. And as a hobbyist, people get really frustrated is the big box stores often don't send people home with the correct tools mentally and the actual tools to care for the animal that they bought. Sure. Well, I would say education is important for the employees as well as, you know, right. certainly for the employees as well as for, for consumers. So um, one of the reasons people go to a pet store is for that purpose, to get some information, to learn from uh, the folks that are in the store about the animals and so forth. So I think it's, it's important to make sure, you know, that, that folks that are, that are employed have that knowledge. Um, and, and what does it look like for Habitattitude? It, it, it's, it, as, as, you, as you say, having that information at point of sale, um, but, but also to reflect, you know, to get them to take a look at some of the information on the website through pamphlets as well as signage um, and stickers and things to, to get them to understand some of the different things that go into the pet ownership process before they start. So, yeah, I would think uh, what we're looking to do is expand that outreach program and ways we're doing that is through partnerships. So, um, you know, your listeners can go to uh, the site Habitattitude.net. At the top right of that is a, an orange button that says partner with Habitattitude, and it allows uh, businesses, organizations, government agencies, anyone who wishes to partner with us and that wants to get this information out there. It gives them all of the artwork and, and, and uh, tools necessary to get the Habitattitude name in front of consumers um, and, and then get that education material in, into their hands. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And, and that that is a perfect way of showing people that the hobby is taking control over itself. And, you know, th this Habitattitude is sort of an example of it, it's the, solving the same problem that the government officials try to solve, but you're solving it through education rather than legislation. Absolutely. And I think this is another really important point to make is that 
regulation is not the only way or laws are not the only way to to impact behaviors or to, to improve situations. Educational campaigns like this are, are, ex are exactly what I think we need to be doing more of, in fact, to make sure that pet owners are aware of what's going on out there, but also as a way to show officials that we're not the bad guys. You know, we, we are, the responsible pet industry is out there doing the right things to bring joy to families across America. And uh, it's, it's a matter of, you know, husbandry practices, making sure they're abiding by the right rules and regulations, but it's also making sure that you know, we're arming consumers, the future pet owners and current pet owners with the right information to properly care for these animals for their lifetime. Uh, so, you know, regulatory has a place, regulations have a place, and uh, there's there's a need for that to some degree, um, you know, as long as they're not overburdensome. But where we can work with officials and where we can uh, bring information to the public is uh, is is. is key to you know, what we want to try and do here uh, and make sure that we work on non-regulatory solutions as much as possible. Right. Yeah. Because you want people in the hobby to, to, to be able to choose to do the correct thing rather than be forced to do the correct thing. Because if they're forced, a lot of times that creates, you know, black market type situations or, you, you know, you lose people. Well, and, and, and it's not so much the, the forcing is sometimes these things aren't necessarily necessary. Sometimes right. these regulations are just uh, a little uh, above where they need to be based on whatever rationale, um, you know, the officials have come up with. So, um, you know, educating the people is what's going to change behavior, not forcing, because you're right. Those black markets do exist. People are going to, you know, use them to a greater degree if there's not a, um, a legal uh, uh, upfront way of, of doing things. There is going to be a certain group of population that's going to go do that. And uh, that doesn't help anyone. There are no protections for animals. There's no protections for uh, consumers. And, uh, and, and again, that's why it's so important for us to work on, on non-regulatory issues. Uh, again, the credit union world, uh, it was about... Uh, personal financial education so that people, um, young adults specifically, are entering their prime borrowing years with uh, a good financial you know, state. They were, they were educated to make the right decisions as a consumer so they weren't in major debt or uh, consumer credit debt or things like that. So I think that translates well to the pet ownership side. You know, industry wants to educate its, its, um, its constituents, if you will, the customers, the pet owners, uh, to make sure that they're doing the right things and that they can continue to avail themselves of pets in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And that's actually really interesting. So I'm guessing you, you probably pulled a lot of your experience from those credit union days into the job you have now. Certainly with this educational component. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think uh, it's important to make sure that uh, information is, is out into the hands of consumers so they can make the right decisions. Right. And I know, I know this is kind of getting away from the animals, but on the, on the habitatitude, the water gardening, is that like, is that because are aquatic plants sort of an invasive risk or, or is that the issue? There? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, aquatic plants are very much a concern. Um, and then uh, it's not only that, but also, you know, koi fish uh, and perhaps other animals that may, may, uh, may complement a, a water garden. Those are also things to concern, to be considered a, uh, to be concerned about as far as water burners involved yeah 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 i guess you get into your your sliders and your red uh, turtles and whatnot and and then you can and that's one of the 
big invasive species, especially in Canada, even when you have uh, turtles all over the place. Um, and the other, the, actually, the, you had already mentioned, but, but the classroom pet thing is really interesting as well. It's something that I've not thought about, but I guess that is probably an issue that people run into all the time is they want to expose their kids to a, a classroom pet. But then as soon as July hits, it's like, what, where does the animal go? So, so what do you guys, how do you help teachers and educators? What, what tools do you give them to help them solve that problem? Well, in, uh, in, in the terms of, uh, habitatitude, one of the things I think that we do is we just, we give them a lot of information specific to alternatives to, to, uh, to, uh, release, uh, planning, making sure that information, um, is in the hands of teachers so that they make the right plans and choosing the right pet in the first place. And then what does it take to, you know, um, what does it take to bring folks along? And so, um, a part of that includes a pledge. Uh, classroom pledge uh, that we have. It's a form that they can download um, and uh, gives uh, uh, the students something to, uh, uh, to, to, to hold on to to say that uh, this is what we need to do when we uh, want to provide the pet a new home or where we, uh, we want to take the, home, the pet home for a weekend or something to that effect. Uh, and then just arming them with resources. Uh, there are a number of different links and things on the website that give them uh, guidelines preventing the introduction of, of these animals. So, you know, it, it gives them opportunities for a number of different learning, uh, you know, learning opportunities, I guess is the best way to put it, um, where it's, you know, not only the talk about the care and the, the, the uh, husband, not husbandry, but the care and uh, ongoing maintenance of the animal in, in, in the environment that it's in. It's also what do you do when you take the animal home? And then there's a whole component about talking about what are aquatic invasive species and how, how do they impact things? And, and why is it important then to, to not release these animals in the wild? Yeah, I'm sure you just contact your local herb society and somebody will look after it for the summer. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Like my, my friend's a teacher and he has a crested gecko and it always ends up at my place during the summer because <laughs> it just needs someone to care for it. So that's great. So in terms of yourself, sort of your personal views, are, when we're talking about regulating some of these animals, some of the reptiles that, that are out there in the hobby, are there some that you think that we absolutely should have, you know, rules against ownership or are you more like there should be total freedom? I'm sure you're somewhere in the middle. Well, I think from... I think from the pet industry standpoint, I think there are there are certain animals that may require a level of care beyond the average pet owner. And so I think it's incumbent upon officials to make sure that they understand what animals require that level of care. And then how do you regulate to make sure that, you know, if it's a large animal, it doesn't get loose and cause havoc in, in the community. Uh, but I would say, you know, there... I think that you know pet pet ownership comes in many different forms, and it's uh, it's awfully difficult to find out where that line is drawn. Uh, from from the companion animal pet industry standpoint, I think you know there's probably a size and a care consideration that needs to be in a, uh, brought into play, uh, and uh, there's certainly levels of training and animal care that are required for larger animals and things that that may not be you know uh, available to the average pet owner. Uh, through websites and things. So I would say that, you know, personally, that's where I would draw the line uh, is with animal care and, and, um, and things of that nature. Yeah, I, I agree because there, there are like your reticulated pythons and your African rock pythons and, and things that just get so large that the average person probably shouldn't have easy access to in a way. But it, do you think that um, there's a wake, like Australia, for example, they have very specific guidelines. And I think they even have officials that come in and will review your setup and see if this is sort of 
approve or disapprove. Is that something that can be put in place in more of a regulation than a ban? Or is that just a crazy amount of work? No. Well, it is a crazy amount of work. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it is something that if the officials want to, to do that, they can. Now, uh, you know, something like that will require a number of uh, resources that they may not have. Uh, and the other thing is to consider is, you know, again, where do you draw the line? Um, when do you want to have government officials coming into your home to inspect things and tell you whether that's right or not? And then you have to be concerned about the officials themselves sometimes, who's, who's being represented and, and who, is, who is doing the inspections. So there are, there are a number of concerns when it comes to that. Uh, I think certainly certain animal populations or certain species, it makes sense to do. Uh, I would say for the vast majority of pet owners, I think, you know, that uh, are keeping them in, in good enclosures and practicing proper techniques. No, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it also depends on what's going on in the localities where, where these things are being discussed too. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because I live in a, in a province in Canada that has a, a pretty solid ban on venomous animals, which I, I think is okay. I, th I think, especially being part of a public healthcare system, the last thing I want to pay for is Joe Schmo who didn't know how to use his hook right and get tagged. And now I have, you know, there's a giant bill. I mean, some people probably would totally disagree, but part of that ban is the Western hognose snake because it has, you know, rear fang venom. And it, it's one of those situations where it's like, well, that's a tiny little snake that's going to give you maybe a bee sting if you let it chew on you for several minutes. And <laughs> I'm sure that's a, a good example of those broad bills. That's that an, it, yeah, that is exactly a good example. But you know, there's a way to to educate the lawmaker on that and just say it's it's no more than a bee sting, folks. This is no more than, you know, you might even get out just by walking to your car. Um, it's just, it's a matter of, of, uh, working with your officials to educate them on that and help them understand. And some are more willing to work with you than others, but that, that's where, you know, uh, in fact, I think we've, um, uh, in, in a couple of jurisdictions, we've talked about medically significant, uh, snakes, or venomous snakes versus regular venomous snakes and, and things of that age when they start, uh, carving down the middle and trying to find where, uh, they want to apply their regulations. Right. Yeah. Cause the line is so difficult to draw, you know, it's, it's, it's even with dogs, for example, I know there's pit bull bans all over the place, but a lot of times if you read those bills, it says pit bull or dogs that look like pit bulls. <laughs> so they sort of cover like just an umbrella to kind of protect themselves, you know? Yeah. And then, then you identified another issue when it comes to oversight of, of these species and that is identification. Mm -hmm. When it comes to reptiles and amphibians, you know, certain species look like other species. And so you're really relying on the education of your animal control officer, whoever's doing these uh, uh, oversight uh, inspections and things, really, you know, relying on them to, to be on top of their game, uh, which, you know, I'm sure they are in certain ways. But, you know, it can be very, very confusing uh, for even experienced keepers uh, and specialists to understand some of the differences off the cuff. Uh, yeah. You say you're inspecting a home and things like that. So it might be that that can lead to confusion and, and problems. Yeah. You certainly need to be an expert in, in the hobby or in, in the science field to distinguish it. Yesterday, I was watching a movie on Netflix called The Jungle. <laughs> and it was this uh, with Daniel Radcliffe. He's like stuck in, in the Amazon rainforest or something. And at one point, there's a snake and he throws it down from a tree and, and smashes his head. And it was a it was a carpet python from Australia. <laughs> it was just one of those things where, you know, most people would have no clue. But I was like, what the hell? Why, why couldn't they at least do some research with this animal? But <laughs> I hear you. 
Yeah. So, I mean, with, and that, that's the same sense with the government officials is, is there's just no way to, you'd have to have like a science, like a biologist on board essentially to inspect people's homes. Sure. Or, or arm your inspectors with, with the right information beforehand and, and make sure that they're, um, you know, uh, up to, up to speed with, with all of the different uh, angles that, that might come into play when it comes to these inspections. Most definitely. That is a big concern. Do you remember a few years ago, I want to say it was like five or six years ago, this was an incident in Canada where we had a, a python basically kill two kids. And it was, uh, it was a really bizarre situation that I think most people in the reptile hobby um, kind of thought was a little bit suspicious. Like it seemed a little bit like there was something else going on. But essentially this weird, this this 20 or 18 foot car or um, African rock python got out and supposedly strangled these two kids. Uh, do you Do you remember that at all? I vaguely, I, I do remember yeah. hearing about that. Yeah, it, it was just one of those bizarre situations. And those are those stories that become so sensationalized. And I mean, it's a horrible situation. And, and I, I really hope that obviously never happens again. But it's it's one of those things that gives, you know, fuel to the fire of, of legislation. Well, what, what typically happens, well, that's an African rock, right? That, that's right. I yeah. think there are significant regulations on that. So, you know, yes. Yeah. States. So, um, you know, but what, what happens in those instances are, the word Python gets thrown around. Right. Uh, there, was, there was a Python that did this or did X, Y, and Z. So we need to take a much stronger stance or do more to address Pythons. So that lumps, they just write a piece of legislation or ordinance or something and just write Pythons. And then that takes care of all, all Pythons now become banned because of that, you know, one, it's an important detail, but it's, it's, a, it's a small detail. So that's an example, I guess, maybe of how, those stories, while, you know, it's talking about an animal that's already regulated and voices an odd circumstance, and it's very unfortunate, of course, uh, that the, the can be misinterpreted or, uh, you know, just not necessarily uh, explored uh, enough to determine that not all pythons are, are, are required to be, you know, banned or anything like that, but that there are good pythons, that there are important pythons to the pet trade and to, to consumers that need to be protected. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And, and, and someone who's in the hobby, you, you don't necessarily think that way. But whenever I tell someone that I have a carpet python, they go, oh, my God, you have a python? Yeah. <laughs> and it's because it's that's what they, they must think, sort of the same situation. So it uh, it definitely creates a lot of gray area. And then th that that's the important piece of making sure when you, I'm sure in your experience, going to these lawmakers that you're not going in there thinking like, wow, you guys are idiots for not knowing this. It's more so just going, hey, let, let's sit down and let's talk about the differences here. Absolutely. Lawmakers are busy. They are right. dealing with tons of societal issues and uh, they're packed, their agenda and their schedule is packed. So uh, it's important to make sure that, um, you know, you, you go in with respect because they're dealing with a ton of different things. Uh, and, and you also go in there with the understanding that you are one of many issues. So you have to be impactful, you have to be concise and to the point. Uh, and, uh, and make sure that, uh, uh, they understand, you know, your, your key points before, you know, you, you leave that office. Right. Go in with a clear plan with a few, uh, areas that you want to hit that will just sort of leave a lasting impression. Yeah. Because they're not, they're very smart people. They're very accomplished people. They are folks that, uh, deserve a modicum of respect, believe it or not. I know politicians are often derided, uh, but they, they do a lot of good work too. Um, so it's important to make sure that, 
you know, the folks that you interact with, uh, you give them the respect that that's due, but also, you know, they're not idiots. They're just people that are trying to get jobs done and do things and trying to do the right thing in their minds. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point is, is just, just helping them out, showing them that they're the issues in, in the thing that they've created. But uh, it's almost like if you went for a coffee with them, you'd be friends by the end type thing, even though sure. they're creating something that's totally against what you believe. Sure. Well, I mean, you're going to run into circumstances where you won't see eye to eye. Um, and that's unfortunate. But the, 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 the angle there is just to keep putting your information out in the front of folks that are decision makers and, and, and trying to convince them or convincing them that this is, this is a good way of doing things. And, and responsible people should continue to do the responsible thing. Um, don't, don't ban every pet or don't ban certain pets just because of one or two bad apples. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I always wonder what would happen to society if we just completely banned all pets. And some people would be happy, but I think it would not actually turn out to the way they think. I, you know, I think that would be that would be horrible. Um, if I if if I couldn't go home to my dogs, or if I couldn't, you know, spend an afternoon, you know, redoing the bioactive setup for my little cresties, that would really impact my life in a negative way. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that sort of radiates off of each person. So, you, you take that away from somebody and it's not that you just took away their hobby. You don't know how they're going to interact within the society now. They, they might be, you know, one standard deviation more depressed at this point. And how is that going to affect everything? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it, it sort of expands. So, um, in terms of future plans, do you guys have anything you're working on right now that, that you're looking at or you just kind of head down in the, and just keep firing away on, on this current well, issues? Always, uh, always looking to, uh, you know, what's going on in the legislatures and the regulatory uh, uh, angles. Uh, so continuing to develop relationships, good, positive relationships with lawmakers. That's, that's part, uh, that's key to, to what we're doing. But the other thing is really to buckle down on getting this partner network for Habitattitude working. Uh, we really want to make sure, because, yeah, we've got a lot of really good information and we do have some wonderful partners already signed up. We need more. Uh, we need to get this information into the hands of, uh, uh, folks, uh, you know, across the country. So I think one of our key components right now, one of my key focuses is to get this program out to the hands of the public. And, and so that means working with their businesses, working with, uh, uh, other agencies, uh, academic institutions and so on to get that information out there. The other thing is again, the healthy earth. Oh my goodness. Lights went out. We have motions. Uh, we, we have you didn't move tests, enough. Hey, we're, we're, <laughs> Uh, concerned about the environment here. We don't want to use the uh, uh, too much energy. So we there we go. There's the proof. Uh, sensors for the lights. But at any rate, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Healthy Herb Handling Poster briefly too. That's another program that we're trying to uh, uh, get moving uh, even more. Uh, it's a part of a pilot program to expand uh, uh, this sort of educational information into the hands of consumers as well. Uh, and so that, that has been successful. We've been giving out uh, hundreds of posters at uh, the different uh, NARBC events, uh, but we want to get and expand that uh, reach as well. Because again, these are the kinds of uh, things that educate consumers to uh, prevent problems with pet ownership that people use to then bring uh, problems or to bring uh, uh, regulations and overburdens and laws and things. Right. Scare tactic of disease and things. So educating consumers to make sure that they wash their hands ends up, you know, in the long run being a, a really good practice because it changes consumer behavior. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. And, and that's one of those 
pieces of ammunition that people would grasp onto, right? Salmonella, it sounds very bad. And absolutely. it's actually really easy not to get salmonella. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. just have to wash, wash your hands. hands. And here's the other thing, you know, we, we should probably uh, look to creating posters like this for all of the animals, uh, animal categories, because you can get certain zoonotic diseases from a number of different pets, including dogs and cats. So um, I think snakes just get kind of, uh, uh, snakes, reptiles, herbs, we get uh, painted with a broad brush in a lot of ways. And, you know, like you said before, there's a perception issue. Yeah, I'm so vigilant about washing my hands and I have ha hand sanitizer in my reptile room and I'm, I'm constantly using it. And I know there are people, I won't mention any names, but on YouTube, you see it all the time of no no washing, no gloves and handling rodents, like feeder rodents. And it just it makes me cringe because it does not set a good example. Like you should not be handling things with bare hands and not going to wash after. Maybe they are, but it just doesn't look good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I'll make sure everything's in the show notes so people can go find everything. Uh, is is the easy? Or can you just let everybody know what the easiest way to find you and, and Habitatitude and PJAC and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. Go to the website, uh, habitatitude.net. Um, it's habit attitude is the best way to, to think about how to spell that. Um, and and to, to just talk a little bit briefly about that, it's, it's the amalgamation of three words, right? Habit, habitat, and attitude. And because the, the you know, concerns about all three of those come together to, to uh, uh, make sure that uh, we're protecting our environment, uh, improving habits, um, uh, making sure people are concerned about the habitats, and then developing that habits attitude based off of all of that information. Uh, so habitatitude.net, and then pjack.org is going to be your source for a lot of the more dense uh, legislative and regulatory issues that are going on. Um, right now, it's summer. Things are a little uh, slow from a number of the different state legislatures, but a lot of localities are picking up. Regulatory agencies are doing a number of different things. So it's always something going on on that space. So check out pjack.org for the latest on that. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for one, joining me today and also the work that you're doing because it is, like I said at the very beginning, it's very much behind the scenes. The average person may not realize that you know our, our ability to own animals and pets are because of people like you that are out there battling for us. So so as a, a member of the pet hobby and the reptile community, I thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And, and thanks to all the folks that we work with that, that uh, give us the information and the expertise to, to help us do our jobs. So um, we really appreciate that. And, and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. It was a pleasure. All right, that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening to it. I hope you found some valuable information in there. Josh, if you're listening, thank you very much for taking the time. I know you're an extremely busy guy, and thank you very much for going up to bat for the hobby. We all really, really appreciate it, and I think we all learned a lot through that conversation, so thank you. And again, thank you for supporting me through this entire year. If you've been here the whole time or if you're new to Animals at Home Team, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I do really appreciate it. Make sure you go check out customreptilehabitats.com for any of your future reptile equipment needs. There are always links in the YouTube description box as well as on the show notes. And on my website, you'll see Custom Reptile Habitats banners through the bottom as well as on the sidebar. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you guys next time.